0: Sentire Media
1: Hello everyone, and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 35, The Lion, The Fox, and The Great Schism. In the last episode, we once again saw a Holy Roman Emperor try to set up a delicate balance in the Italian peninsula in the hopes that it could be made more governable. This time around, the Emperor was Henry III and his delicate balance was made with the Canossa family in the north. You will remember their origins from the hills south of the town of Regium Lepidi, present-day Regimilia) but as they expanded, they placed their capital in Mantua. In the south, we had Guaimar of Salerno, propped up but also kept in check by the Normans. In the centre, we had as always the Papal States. Henry had finally put an end to the toing and fro of Pope-swapping of the major Roman noble families and had put his chaplain Clement II on the throne of St. Peter in the hopes that he would unleash the changes that the base of the church were clamouring for as corruption ran rampant in particular under the form of the buying and selling of church offices known as simony. Now as popes often did Clement II didn't really last long indeed he only got from the 24th of December 1046 1046 to the 9th of october 1047 as the envoys from rome made their way to ask henry the third who would be the next pope up popped benedict the ninth again the young and naughty Tuscolo pope who took the throne while everybody else was looking the other way meanwhile henry the third had made his choice and was enraged to find out what had happened in rome he ordered his vassal Bonifacio of Canossa to escort the Emperor's choice down to Rome and make sure he got there safely. Here we start to see the friction between the Canossa and the Empire was spoke about in the last episode and Bonifacio refused the request pointing to the fact that the Romans had already made their choice. This enraged the Emperor even further and he ordered Bonifacio to escort the new Pope or face the consequences. Bonifacio was ambitious and crafty, but not stupid, and he understood when it was time to back down. So the Emperor's choice was escorted by Bonifacio of Canossa down to Rome and made Pope. The guy's name was great. He was Popo Curagnon which sounds a lot like Popeye, doesn't it? He took the name of Damasus II and lasted a whole whopping 24 days, from the 16th of July 1048 to the 9th of August, when he died, possibly by poison, but more likely of malaria. You can just imagine Henry smacking his forehead back in Germany, after all that trouble getting him down there, the guy just goes and dies. At this point, it was an assembly at Worms that selected the next candidate. This was Bruno of Egishem Dasburg, a choice approved by the emperor and the Roman delegates. However, the man himself would not accept until he had been freely elected by the Roman clergy and people, So. Down he went, and the people of Rome duly obliged. Bruno took the name of Leo IX, Leone in Italian, Lion, and straight away showed that he meant business. He convened what came to be known as the Easter Synod in 1049. In this occasion, it was once again made clear that celibacy was a church rule, all the way down to and including the position of archdeacon. So all this getting married and having concubines business was indeed naughty. The Pope made it clear also that he was very much against every form of simony, the buying and selling of church offices, as we said. Now, Leo expressing his disapproval of the practice was more or less as far as things went, really there was a lot of foot shuffling, looking at the floor and possibly some nonchalant whistling, but not much progress was made against such a profitable practice. After that the Pope went off on a tour with a synod here and a procession there and so on. He was energetic and seemed to have his heart in the right place. Perhaps if he had stuck to Popey churchy stuff, he would have done well. Unfortunately, Pope Leo IX had a bee in his bonnet about the Normans. To be fair, they were practising the old Viking habit of going around, raiding and pillaging, and weren't really the most quiet and peaceful neighbours. What's more, another of the pesky Hauteville brothers, as we saw a few episodes ago, had made his way down, and this one was a character indeed. His name was Robert, and in time he gained the title of Giscard, from the Latin Viscardus, which has been variably translated as the cunning, the wily, the weasel, or the fox. He made his way down as an adventurer in 1047, and banged around a little, first siding with Guaima of Salerno, and then abandoning him after feeling he had been betrayed, and finally ending up with the little fiefdom in Calabria from his brother Drogo, which he then set out to expand. That brings us up to about the early 1050s, when a series of events converged to make the situation even more interesting. First of all, in the year 1051, the Byzantines, who were actually thinking of finally liquidating their Italian possessions, decided to have another go in a style that they had used before. They chose someone who had a vested interest in Italy and supplied him with some troops and support, so that he could do the dirty work for them. The person they chose was actually the leader who had rebelled against them, Argiro, son of Melo from an earlier rebellion at the beginning of the century. They offered him the title of Duke of Puglia, and gave him a push in the right direction. One of his first orders of business was to have the Norman leader at the time, Drogo Hortville, assassinated, something that, as you can imagine, didn't go down too well with the Normans at all. The following year, another issue came into play, and that was the death of the ever-sneaky, ever-present, ever-manoeuvring Guayma of Salerno. He had managed to extend his influence over a good part of southern Italy, as we mentioned thanks to the Normans, but this unity did not extend beyond his death, and Salerno, Capua, Gaeta and Amalfi all went off more or less on their own again. It was at this point that Pope Leo IX decided to act. He wanted to extend his reform and influence to the south of Italy, and he felt that, despite what Emperor Henry III thought, the Normans were standing in the way. So, in 1053, he jumped onto Argiro's bandwagon, put together some of his own troops, brought some of the new Lombard rulers on board, such as Rodolfo of Benevento, and the new Duke of Gaeta, Leo II, and the Archbishop and citizens of Amalfi. He even managed to scrape together some Swabian troops, although the Emperor was not officially involved in the whole adventure. The Pope made his way south with the intention of hooking up with Argiro and his Byzantines, and after a long march, in which only one town opened its gates to the Papal army, they camped near the city of Civitate on the Fortore River. The Normans were there, way before Argiro. However, the Normans, who, after all, were Christians, were not all that keen on attacking the supreme representative of their religion, and sent an embassy to the Pope, who, since he was waiting for Argiro to arrive, was all too happy to keep the Normans talking. They reached the end of their patience, and on the 17th of June, 1053, before Argiro and the Byzantines could arrive, The battle began. The Normans were outnumbered almost two to one with an army of around 3,000 cavalry and 500 infantry against a combined army of around 6,000. These included troops from Rome, Gaeta, Aquino, Teano, Amalfi, Spoleto, Sabina, other areas of Campania and from Ancona. However, when the Normans were involved, numbers had a different meaning. They were more experienced, better organised, and better coordinated by their three main commanders, Umfred Hauteville, Richard Drengot, and Robert Guiscard. It was they who took the initiative, attacking at dawn and sending the Lombard troops fleeing before them with little or no resistance. There was some from the Swabian troops, and for a moment it seemed that they would be able to turn the tide of the battle. But in the end, it was all over in a few hours. And the fleeing troops, who were not cut down, drowned trying to swim across the river. The battle was a disaster for the Pope. He was captured by the Normans, who were very careful to treat him as well as possible. When the battle was over, they knelt down before him and asked for his forgiveness. And what do you do when a bunch of big hairy Normans hold you captive and ask for forgiveness? Well, you forgive them. The Pope conveniently remained a prisoner of the Normans in Benevento for over nine months, until he formally recognised the authority of the houses of Drengot and Hauteville over southern Italy. With that done, he was finally released. So the coalition that was supposed to end the Norman threat in the south was crushed, and the definitive battle not only cemented the Norman military domination, but gave a more official start to their political domination as well. Although said domination would not be officially recognized until 1059 in the Treaty of Melfi, it was a very big step. Furthermore, One man arose, thanks to his incredible bravery and military prowess, in the battle. And that was Robert Giscard of the Hauteville family, who in time would become the protector and military arm of the same papacy that had tried to see him and his kin off the peninsula. A rather ironic turn of events. After his forced holiday in Benevento, Leo IX finally got back to Rome, but didn't survive long after that. However, he did have just enough time to take another step that didn't go quite the way he had planned and brought huge consequences. Now that the Norman question was put to rest, in the exact opposite manner intended by the Pope, Leo could look to the other presence in the peninsula and that was the Byzantines. Now, the Eastern and Western churches had grown distant, not even speaking the same language anymore, because Latin was used in the West and Greek in the East. For years, the popes of Rome had been focused on their real worldly powers as rulers of a state, while the Eastern patriarchs, who were the chaplains of the Eastern Roman Empire, were focused more on theological issues. This can be seen in the presence of Greek words, also today in the language of the church, with words such as baptism, eucharist, diocese, bishop, deacon, monk, and so on. In the west they prayed kneeling, in the east standing. In the west you were baptized by aspersion, with a little water over your head. In the east you were almost drowned. In the west priests had to shave, and theoretically, as we have seen very theoretically, they were supposed to be celibate, while in the east They had to wear a beard and were allowed to marry. Even the most important symbol of Christianity, the cross, was different, with the western cross having a longer vertical arm and the eastern cross having two arms of the same length. All of these were perhaps things that could have been overlooked, but then there was the whole issue of the Holy Spirit and where it was supposed to come from. Basically, the Council of Nicaea in 325 had determined that the Holy Spirit, ex patre procedit, it came from the Father, and ever since the Eastern Church had stuck to that decision. The Western Church, however, in the Council of Toledo in 589, had determined that the Holy Spirit, ex patre filioque procedit, it came from the Father and the Son filioque comes from the word filius meaning son and que added to the end which is a way in Latin of putting the and after the second part of a couple a bit like saying with me son and instead of with me and my son this was a biggie because it changed the whole idea of the role of the son of Jesus in the Holy Trinity however even that could have been smoothed out in time in the end, it was, as it often is, a question of power. The issue was, who was the boss of the whole church? So, whatever excuse was used on a theological level, the boss would be the one that didn't back down. The patriarch of Constantinople since 1043 had been Michael Cerularius and he was not pleased about these Roman popes going around saying they were the top dog, and he started a series of press campaigns against Leo IX and his reforms. Things like we mentioned above, beards, for example, all those scandalous naked faces would just not do at all. Plus, the pope was still waving around the donation of Constantine, a fake document according to which the emperor Constantine had assigned a whole series of lands in Italy to the Pope, including Rome. Leo didn't help much as much when, after he had gotten his whipping from the Normans, he set about trying to get the Byzantine churches in Italy to reform or close up shop. Things came to a head in 1054, when Leo sent a delegation to Constantinople, officially over ecclesiastical matters but most probably also seeking help against the Normans from the Emperor when the Patriarch of Constantinople Michael Cerularius, refused the demands the head of the delegation Cardinal Humbert of Silva Candida laid a papal bull on the altar of Santa Sophia excommunicating the Patriarch who lost no time in doing the same to the delegation the Great East-West Schism had started. As always, thank you very, very much for listening. Thanks in particular to my Patreon donors, the Giuseppe and Anita Garibaldi level, Preston, Roberta, Sean and Jeff, the Mazzini and Matilde di Canossa level, Benjamin, The Galileo and Margarita Hack level, Chris, Stephen, Vincent, Jay, Shelby, and Caitlin, and the top, Dante and Maria Montessori level, Sen. Thanks very much to our new Patreon supporter, Ben L. Welcome aboard, Ben. Great to have you as part of our little family. Remember that like them, you can go to patreon.com, a history of Italy, to support the show. You can also do that via PayPal on the website ahistoryofitaly.com You can get in touch with questions, suggestions or comments hello at ahistoryofitaly.com and on the website you can click through to our social media including Facebook and Twitter Once again, thanks to everyone very much for listening Until next time, arrivederci
0: And we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com and find out how to submit your show.